The Drive-In Movie Feature Review is now called The Movie Marquee. Thank you for stopping by at the Drive-In Feature Movie Review Podcast. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Drive-In Movie Feature Review Podcast. I am your host, Eric, and this week we are reviewing Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. With me, as always, is Ken. Now, why don't you take it easy, and please make me a drink of grain alcohol and rainwater, and help yourself to whatever you like. That sounds good. And Ted. Gentlemen, there's no fighting in the war room. That's great advice, and I am your host this week, Eric. Mein Fuhr! I can walk! Of course, those are all lines from Dr. Strangelove, and that is the movie we are going to be reviewing today on the podcast. Ken, tell us a little something about some of the particulars and the reviews of this one. Okay, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Pouring and Love the Bomb, was released on January 29th in 1964. It's based on a book, Red Alert, by Peter George. Dr. Strangelove stars Peter Sellers in three distinct characters, Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, President Merkin Muffley, and Dr. Strangelove. It also stars George C. Scott as General Buck Turgenson, Sterling Hayden as Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper, Keenan Wynn as Colonel Bat Guano, Slim Pickens as Major T.J. King Kong, and Peter Bull as the Soviet Ambassador Alexei de Sadesky. The screenplay was by Stanley Kubrick, Terry Southern, and... Peter George. This was also directed by Stanley Kubrick and also produced by Stanley Kubrick. The running time of the movie is 94 minutes with a budget of 1.8 million and it made 9.4 million at the North American box office. It also received four nominations at the Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor for Peter Sellers. Thanks, Ken, for those particulars of the movie. Tell me a little bit about the reviews. Did the critics like this when it came out? The credits consensus is that Stanley Kubrick's brilliant Cold War satire remains as funny and razor sharp today as it was in 1964. It's certified fresh by Rotten Tomatoes at 98% with a 94% audience score. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times said, The most shattering sick joke I've ever come across. That's a good review. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times said, Dr. Strangelove is filled with great comic performances, a four out of four. Dave Kaufman of Variety said, Nothing would seem to be farther apart than nuclear war and comedy, yet Kubrick's caper eloquently tackles a fail-safe subject with a light touch. And James Power of The Hollywood Reporter said, Kubrick has shown before that he's a director of rare gifts. Dr. Strangelove brings them into full realization. And that's what I have for the reviews. Thanks, Ken. Ted, uh, tell us a little bit about the plot of this movie. Thank you, Eric. Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. The movie tells the story of how America ends up in a nuclear war with Russia in the early 1960s. The movie introduces us to a pilot, Major Kong, and the crew of a B-52 bomber that is constantly in the air in case nuclear war should break out with Russia. We are also introduced to Colonel Lionel Mandrake, 
an RAF pilot who is stationed at Burpleson Air Force Base and is under the command of General Jack Ripper. Burpleson Air Force Base is the home to the 843rd Bomb Wing, of which Major Kong's B-52 bomber is a part of. General Ripper, in a fit of anti-communist paranoia, decides to go rogue and issue Wing Attack Plan R, which would command all the bombers under his command to strategically attack military targets in Russia with nuclear weapons. General Ripper commands Colonel Mandrake to collect every radio on the base to prevent outside news from reporting the truth that the Russians have not attacked the United States and revealing that General Ripper has issued the orders unilaterally without any provocation. When Colonel Mandrake turns on a radio that he is collecting, he listens to the radio and realizes there has been no attack and that General Ripper has lost his mind. Upon receiving the Wing Attack Plan R, Major Kong distributes the orders to his crew. Initially, the crew questions the validity of the orders, but Major Kong convinces them that this would not be a test. The crew and Major Kong prepare themselves to attack their two Russian targets. The radio operator then switches the radio to a secret machine that only will receive orders with a top-secret three-letter prefix. Word starts to spread through the chain of command that General Ripper has lost his mind and issued orders to attack Russia with nuclear weapons. General Buck Turgidson is a member of President Merkin Muffley's team of military advisors. He is contacted at his apartment and is given word that General Ripper has issued Plan R. He casually gets dressed to head off to a meeting of President Muffley's military advisors. We cut to a scene from inside the war room, where the President and his advisors are discussing the actions of General Ripper. It is determined that the Army will attack Burpleson Air Force Base to take General Ripper into custody and have him issue the orders for the 843rd Bomb Wing to stand down. Also, it is determined that President Muffley will allow Russian Ambassador Sadesky and Prime Minister Kissoff about the attack that is coming. Colonel Mandrake, unable to convince General Ripper to call off the attack, then is forced to assist General Ripper in attacking the Army Battalion that has been sent to take General Ripper into custody. After putting up a decent fight, the men of Burpleson Air Force Base decide to surrender. A despondent General Ripper, realizing that his men have surrendered, then commits suicide without giving Colonel Mandrake the secret code to recall the bomb wing. A desperate Mandrake frantically searches General Ripper's office for the code. After decoding the insane ramblings of General Ripper, Colonel Mandrake figures out the secret code. Mandrake realizes that time is running out to recall the bomb wing and must get to the secret code to the president, but all communication has been severed at the base. Finally, after being slowed down by Army Colonel Guano, Mandrake is able to make a call to the president to give him the code. Before receiving the code from Mandrake, President Muffley informs Prime Minister Kissoff of the destination locations of every bomber of the 843rd Bomb Wing. The Russians reveal that if there is a nuclear attack, it will trigger their doomsday machine. The machine will send the entire world into a nuclear winter and all life on Earth will die. The combination of Russian attacks and the bombers receiving the secret recall code successfully stop all the bombers except for Major Kong's bomber. Major Kong's bomber was struck by a Russian missile and was damaged but not destroyed. The damage done to the bomber was enough to destroy the machine that receives the attack codes and the machine that receives the secret code to call off the attack. Damaged and losing fuel, Major Kong decides to go to the closest targeting site and bomb it. Upon arriving at the new attack,
attack site, the bomb bay doors are damaged and not working. Major Kong goes down to inspect and hotwires the doors and releases the bombs with him riding one of the bombs out of the bomb bay. President Muffley, his advisors, and Ambassador Sadesky all come to the realization that they cannot call off Major Kong's bomber. Knowing that the nuclear attack is imminent, they are all dejected and resigned to the fact that they will all die. An advisor in a wheelchair, Dr. Strangelove, comes out and informs them that if they all go into a series of mine shafts, they can survive the impending nuclear winter. Dr. Strangelove also advises them with the right amount of attractive female counterparts that they will all be able to repopulate the world after the nuclear winter is over. Before they can enact the plan, Major Kong's bomb that he is writing down strikes the Russian airbase and sets off the doomsday machine, ending all life on Earth. How about that? That's one of the great endings in satire movie history there with Slim Pickens riding that bomb to the end. It's absolutely wonderful. It's amazing. Let's uh, dive into this movie here. One of the things that strikes me right off the bat, and I just recently watched this movie again uh, for the first time, probably in about two or three years. It's one of those movies that I like to kind of watch every couple years. Um, but something really struck me this time as I watched it. I noticed that this movie has a lot of sexual references in it, a lot of sexual innuendos. Some of the examples, I mean, right off the bat, the opening uh, scene is the B-52 being refueled by the other plane. I mean, that image is pretty self-explanatory. General Ripper with the erect cigar in his mouth and General Ripper dealing with erectile dysfunction through this movie. And the only female character, Miss Scott, played by Tracy Reed, she's in a bikini the whole movie for her scene. Dr. Strangelove is a former uh, Nazi scientist in a wheelchair. When he gets excited, his right arm always goes erect in that Nazi salute. And it's usually when he's talking about destruction or colonization or something that gets him really excited. And speaking of getting excited, did we all notice how all the men in the war room there were really excited when they were promised 10 attractive women for every one of them? And then, of course, the last scene, Kong is riding that missile right down to the end. It doesn't get any more phallic than that. What do you guys think? Well, I think the sexual jokes here, the erectile dysfunctional jokes, I mean, take, for instance, the beginning of the movie with the, the aircraft carriers refueling, and they're trying to play that off as being sexual. But to be honest with you, you don't really get that until later on in the movie when you have Jack Ripper talking about erectile dysfunction. And then you realize that some of these jokes earlier on in the film are about that. I don't think I would have gotten the beginning of the movie as far as the feeling being sexual until I rewatched it a number of times and said, oh, that relates back to a later scene. And these aren't direct sexual jokes. These are actual just really hardcore lines written into the script. They're not meant to be, you know, funny ha-ha jokes. It's kind of like that innuendo, if you will, that rolls. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of innuendos here. You have to look at the names of all the characters. You have Dr. Strangelove, which I believe George C. Scott's character asks what his real name was. And the guy who's sitting next to him says his name is Merker Wuder Gleba, which actually translates from German as strange love. <laughs> Same but thing. not nice. strange love, a strange love. You have the ambassador, Sadesky, is basically a play off of the Marquis de Sade. And you have Buck Turgidson. And I guess turgid is a word, it was what you call an erect penis. I don't know. Um, I had never heard that. But then you have President Merkin Muffley. 
Muffly. But a merkin is a pubic hair wig. Mm-hmm. And you have muffly, of course. Muff is a term for female uh, genital hair and uh, pubic hair. <laughs> and then, you, of course, you have one of the main characters, too, General Jack Ripper. He's Jack the Ripper. <laughs> essentially so there's a whole i mean it's a whole list of the major and even the soviet prime minister his name is kissoff kissoff yeah these are there specifically and what i couldn't find out because kubrick decided to go in the direction of a dark satire because he found the material of a straight nuclear holocaust movie that he couldn't do it justice Actually, he found himself laughing at the idea of making it serious. And that's when he brought in Terry Southern. I wonder how many, and I couldn't ever find the information about whether or not this is Terry Southern's humor, as far as the names of the characters, or if it's Kubrick's, or if it was a collaboration. But this is totally Terry Southern's type of comedy as well. Yeah, I could agree with you more. I do find it interesting that when you mentioned the cigar being erected, you see how the scar gets smaller and smaller as the movie progresses to the point where it's very small by the time he realizes that the gig is up. And that's when he kills Uh, himself, right? That's when he kills himself. The cigar kind of like, (laughs) kind of gives his level of confidence and it just goes smaller and smaller as, as the movie goes on. One of the working titles that they had for the movie was Dr. Strangelove's Secret Uses of Uranus. Uranus meaning the planet, but of course, knowing all of the other entendres here, (laughs) it's another one of those things. It makes you wonder, would that have ever gotten put on a movie poster? Especially during that particular time? I don't know, but I found that pretty amusing when I heard that. If you even look at the title of the movie itself, How I Stopped Worrying About the Bomb, is a play on on the sexual stuff that's being discussed at the end of the movie with the 10 girls to one guy ratio. You could see at the end of the movie, everybody is accepting the fate of the earth where everybody's being killed because they're going to get 10 girls for one guy. And that's more important than worrying about what's going to happen to the world. Another thing, (laughs) these all pop up all over the place. And it wasn't until I got your questions, Eric, that I really started to put a lot of this together. And I've been watching this movie for over 20 years. But Major Kong's target is the ICBM complex at Laputa. Well, Laputa has a couple of different meanings. One, it's from Jonathan Swift's novel, Gulliver Travels, as a place that's inhabited by caricatures of scientific researchers. But it's also a playoff of words because La Puta is Spanish for prostitute. They're literally all over the place. Another is the German word Gemeinschaft is a social relationship between a man and a woman. And and Ken, you had mentioned the opening sequence of the plane being refueled. There's no way to not look at it that way now (laughs) after seeing some of these jokes and playing it. It's a complete comparison right there to that. It actually makes a lot of it funnier, in my opinion. I don't know. It's funnier as you keep on watching it over and over and over again. This is what Stanley Kubrick does, for me at least, is it gets better as you watch it because you learn something about it each time and you connect the dots more and more as you watch it. The first run through, I could see people, again, struggling with this type of movie because like the first time I watch a movie, it's for pretty much enjoyment. I'm not trying to connect the dots unless it's a movie that I believe going into the movie requires me to do so. 
if it's being told me that this is a black comedy or whatever the case may be, I'm going to go in there with a certain frame of mind. And as I watch it, I'm like, okay, I'm not understanding why people think it's so great. But then when I watch it a second time and I'm like, oh, I start connecting dots and then I see why people say how brilliant this movie is. And then by the time you watch it a third time, you're connecting even more dots. The first watch, unless you're a strong intellectual person, which I'd never say that I am, at least not in this particular case, I had a hard time engaging the first time around with this movie, except with the Peter Sellers performance and George C. Scott's performance. They're just stellar. In fact, I just mentioned those two names, but really the cast itself allows you to enjoy this movie the first time around. It allows you to even want to watch it a second or a third time to connect those dots. I think a movie like this that allows you the opportunity to watch it more than once and learn, see things that you didn't see the first time and really it makes the movie stronger. You know, there are movies out there that you watch one time and you say, yeah, this thing's garbage. I'll never watch it again. But a movie like this, the more you watch it, the more you see things, the more you learn. And I think it makes it a better movie. I mean, like Ted said, all these things that he saw just watching it, you know, just recently and me just watching it recently that he hadn't seen watch this movie for 20 years. I have. I've watched it and I figured that there was some things that there were some innuendos there. Definitely. I mean, I always got the joke of Colonel Bat Guano. He's batshit, meaning batshit crazy. And I never made the connection, and I can't believe that I never did, between Jack Ripper and Jack the Ripper, because he's Jack D. Ripper. Jack R. Ripper. Yeah. yeah. It's right it's there. Right, yeah. It's right there in front of you. It, I never had made the ultimate connection between that. And doing the research that we were doing, I kept finding more and more. And it's like, wow, I, how could I have watched this movie and never connected those dots before? And I guess I did learn a couple of things. I did learn what a Merkin was doing the research for our podcast, which, wow, that's a something. Don't Google that if you're at work or anything like that, because that could get you into trouble. There's so much there. And another little thing that I had never made a connection to is you had talked about George C. Scott's girlfriend, Miss Foreign Affairs. Yes. She's actually the girl who's in the Playboy that they're reading on the B-52 with Major Kong. I never made that connection either until recently, which good for George C. Scott's character, Turgeson. I guess it's her that calls him later in the uh, yeah. in the war room. Yeah, I was like, where are you? And he's like, oh, you know, she thinks that he's just using her. He's like, I'm, I'm going to make my wife one day. And I, it's interesting how successful these films that he's had early in his career, because I do not believe they're made for audiences or the general audience in particular. I think these movies are made for Stanley. And I think it's fun to see how his mind works. But he's shown us time and time again, he doesn't care if you like his movie or not. This is all about him and what he, his vision is and what he wants to put out. He's not a studio director, at least not since Spartacus. This was one of those movies that, as far as Dr. Strangelove, and I think this goes forward throughout all of his future movies. When you have somebody who's of a higher intelligence that Stanley was, I mean, by all intents and purposes, some people did really think that he was of genius level like you his goal was to make a movie that's going to make you talk and not just talk once 
but talk after every time you've seen the movie and make you think about it. And I think he really accomplishes that here because he uses satire in a way that is borderline brilliant because nuclear holocaust shouldn't be funny but yet every time i watch the movie i laugh consistently throughout the movie but then after everything's over it makes you ponder some things it's like wow there's a lot more going on there and i think that might be the best satire is the satire that makes you think after it's over and really hits the the point home i don't know what do you guys think well, I think with Stanley Kubrick, you look at the 80s with the release of VHS and actually VHS and stuff like that came in the 70s. But it, when people started really watching it was in the 80s. And I think that's when people started recognizing Kubrick as a genius because they could rewatch all those movies that you just talked about. You know, in 64, you're just going to go to the theater. You might rewatch it again. You might go to the theater again to rewatch it. But in general, you're not going to see this movie again for a very long time until it somehow becomes a movie of the week thing on TV. You're not going to be able to have access to this movie until the 80s in VHS and beta, and then eventually again with DVDs and Blu-rays. It's wonderful that we have that technology now because it allows us to take a movie like this and watch it over and over again. I mean, I watched this movie three times for this podcast. Yeah, if I was reviewing a movie like this 40 years ago, it would be very expensive for me to like watch it that many times. I agree. I mean, technology has definitely made it easier for us to really go back and review the classics before our time, obviously, but movies that our parents would see in the theaters once or twice and then move on to the next movie. We have the luxury now of DVD, Blu-ray, downloading. I mean, we can see this movie anytime we want, as many times we want, and really dissect it and uh, dig into it. And uh, I think that is something that we really kind of take for granted sometimes that a lot of the a lot of the reviews of the day didn't have that luxury and now you got social media like youtube and facebook and podcast podcast that basically tell you some things that you just didn't know about the movie and it intrigues you even more to watch it again and again based on what everybody is saying and we didn't have that even it's just recently within you know the last 15 years or so that we really are starting to be able to dissect all these movies even better because of the technology we have well, in continuing with the dissection here, Ted, you made a, a good point earlier in the podcast. I think we can all agree that this is definitely one of the greatest satire comedies ever made of all time. And uh, during the writing process, Stanley Kubrick struggled to ignore the comedic overtones that were consistently in his mind. Ted, you brought that up earlier. Do you guys think that this movie would have been as successful if it was a drama and it didn't have that dark comedic overtone? A movie that came out during that time, Failsafe, I believe it came out in 63, was a just a direct drama movie and not very successful. Yeah, there's no way. When this was released, right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, kids in school were still having the nuclear drills where they would hide under their desks. So this would not have been received well in any other form than a comedy or black comedy or satire. The environment was too volatile. It got to the point where the movie had to be delayed because it was scheduled for its first test screening on November 22nd, 1963, which President Kennedy was assassinated. Right, which would have been the original day the world stopped turning. Which because of that, one of the lines in the movie was altered. Yeah. 
the original ending of the movie was supposed to be a pie fight. And during the pie fight, President Merkin Muffley takes a pie to the face and he falls down. And that then prompts General Turgeson to cry, gentlemen, our gallant young president has been struck down in his prime. And thankfully, Stanley Kubrick had decided to cut the scene anyway because he thought it was even too over the top for the movie he was making. There's no way not right after Kennedy's assassination would that stayed in the movie. But even now, if you take today's situation that we find ourselves in, we're still worried about nuclear warfare. I guess it has been a trope in a lot of action movies. Uh, One of the main ones that comes to mind would be True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So maybe it would be a little bit easier to digest now, but not in 1964. Definitely. In 1964, look at the the climate. You had, yeah, the Cuban Missile Crisis. You had the Bay of Pigs. You had the assassination of Kennedy. And in the early 60s, everyone was extremely conservative. It was a completely different time in America. And you got to give Stanley Kubrick some credit. For lack of a better word, it took balls to make a movie like this. Let's be honest. I mean, a, a black satirical comedy about nuclear war during this time period? That takes just pure balls. And to bring in somebody like Terry Southern, too, who was pushing the envelope as far as comedy goes with being an author. Another equivalent would have been as if he would have brought in the gonzo journalist from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. We talked about him in Almost Famous. Oh, oh, um, I know you're talking about. Yeah, well, we're drawing a blank here, aren't we? Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson. Somebody like Terry Southern, who had pushed the envelope as far as comedy goes, the only other person that would have been equivalent to pushing that comedic envelope would have been somebody like Hunter S. Thompson, who was the gonzo journalist for what ended up becoming Rolling Stone magazine. But he had written some books prior to that, one about the Hells Angels, which prompted a movie with Marlon Brando. But to bring somebody on like Terry Southern was a big deal. He wasn't a household name across the country. People who were in those circles knew who Terry Southern was. It was a great combination between the two of them to put this movie out. I agree 100% with you. It, it definitely took some, uh, some great writing and some great skills there. One of the requirements of Columbia Pictures was the use of Peter Sellers in this movie. I mean, he had to have several roles. That was a Columbia requirement. And of course, he worked with Peter Sellers in Lolita, and I believe he had two roles in Lolita, if I remember right. Yeah. So originally, Columbia wanted him to do four roles, and due to injury, he could only do three. So let's go into the casting of this movie. I mean, let's look at some of these stars here. This is just a a who's who of Hollywood at the time. Some great casting. And of course, uh, James Earl Jones' first role. Yeah, James Earl Jones got his major motion picture debut because Kubrick had seen him in a play on Broadway. With George C. Scott. Yeah, Yeah. with George C. Scott, The Merchant of Venice. Mm -hmm. That was Darth Vader's voice's first role here. He kind of had a bit role in it, but yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that you catch. But what's interesting is Peter Sellers here, he's a treasure as far as comedy goes. He died way too young. Way too young. Yeah, he really did. And this is one of my favorite, well, you call it a role, but essentially he has three roles here. Each one of these characters is so different. And he was filming another movie. He only had like four weeks to film all of his stuff. Yeah, he was filming one of the Pink Panther movies. 
Yeah, when you talk about genius actors, to be that smart and that versatile that you can play those complex characters that he plays here in Doctor Strangelove in that little bit of time, it's amazing. Amazing isn't even a real good term. You're in awe of him. When he's on screen, you know that it's going to be good. And the dynamic of the three characters is so completely different. Imagine if he ended up playing that fourth character as uh, Major Kong. Well, that fourth character, that was a situation where he actually got hurt while on the rocket. I think he fell out of the plane, if I remember right. He couldn't perfect the Texas accent, too. Yeah. Which is another wild thing. But I'm kind of glad he didn't play. Yeah. I agree. Major Kong. Slim Pickens was great. And when Slim Pickens goes into a combat role, if you will, the helmet comes off and the cowboy hat comes on. I mean, it's perfect. Well, he had only been in Westerns up until this point. And Kubrick made a point not to tell him that this was a satire because he wanted him to play it straight. And two other actors had turned down the part. One was a gentleman who worked on Bonanza, and he said that he wouldn't take the role because it was too pinko commie for him. Though that's a direct quote, too. I'm not just making that up. They settled on Slim Pickens, and he played it straight, and that's exactly how Kubrick wanted it. Having him play it any other way, it might not work. Yeah, they said he never left the country before. They had to rush and get his passport. Yep, and he is pitch perfect because he's the only serious person in the whole movie. Everybody else is either crazy or on the verge of being some form of crazy. But you have him, and he is dedicated, and he's going to do his job. I like Slim Pickens here. And of course, his final image of him writing the bomb has become more than iconic. It's one of the most iconic pictures in movie history. You take Slim Pickens, and then his real name is Lewis Lindley. And he got his name at a rodeo because people would look at him and say, well, this is Slim Pickens here. And so he took that as his stage name. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Like you say, at the end there, he's riding the rocket down below and he's trailing it like he's in a rodeo. So I thought that was kind of a, a cool connection in that sense. And then talking about Peter Sellers, take a look at the different roles that he plays. I love how they're so distinct in each one that he plays. I mean, you don't even have to worry about the makeup. It's not the makeup, it's the performance. He dives right into it. And if you look at the president situation first, and you look at him and George C. Scott going back and forth in the in the war room, and he is everything that a president should be. He's demanding. But then when he's talking to the Russian premier Kissoff, it starts becoming more of a, a wife husband kind of nagging type of deal. He he loses that strength that he has in the war room. And he's like stuff like, don't tell me that I'm not sorry. I'm just as sorry as you. They just go back and forth with this. But my favorite part of that whole thing that gets me every time is, well, Alexi, of course, I want to call you during for other things as well. Exactly. Yeah. You only call me when bad things happen. And that's what's wonderful about these performances is that he can change it up at any moment. And so the president actually almost comes off as being multiple roles in itself. Then you have how the president reacts towards the end when we're told about the 10 women to one ratio. Because at the beginning, he's afraid about being known as the guy who's commit all these murders. He doesn't want to be compared to Adolf Hitler. Well, there's only going to be 10 to 20 million tops dead. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I just love how George C. Scott says that. He's just like casual, nonchalant. He's like, come on. Depending on how the breaks go. Right, right. Yeah, he just says, (laughs) he's chewing that gum. 
George C. Scott constantly is always going to constantly. town on that gum. Yeah. He goes through gums like people go through like cigarettes. And then when he is Mandrake, it's perfect. The accent is perfect. He comes across that he belongs in that role. It's just amazing where he goes with Mandrake. Then when he finally finishes it off with Strange Love, it's the over the top, crazy ex Nazi scientist, it sounds like. When he gets excited, has to do the Nazi salute. It's over the top, but it's also not to the point where it's too much. Well, he had to tone it down. I, this is something else that I read, that whole last sequence. And there's a couple of times you can see the actor who plays Sadesky. You can catch him almost breaking. I guess that Sellers was even more over the top as Strangelove. And nobody on set, including Kubrick, could keep it together. And I guess notoriously, too, throughout shooting, whenever Sellers was on screen doing something funny, Kubrick couldn't even watch the video playback because he was laughing too hard. But that whole last sequence with Strange Love, you can tell that everybody's trying to hold it together because it is, it's so over the top. I just, I, I love that. That's so great. Do you think you this think about- movie is like Kubrick's prior movies and some of his more recent stuff where he has these guys do 20, 30, 40 takes? Oh yeah, they are. Yeah. In fact, Sim Pickens was very upset with how many takes he had to do. He was very frustrated. Peter Sellers was also frustrated from my understanding. George C. Scott talking about keeping it all together. George C. Scott in that one scene where he trips and falls, you know, that's not in the script. He accidentally tripped and fell. And if you see how it's cut off, he starts laughing at the end. You could see a little grin on his face starting. He kept it together enough to finish the line. And then you could see right there at the end, him having a little smirk going again ready to laugh but stanley decided he wanted to use that he did and that's one of the things too with george c scott's portrayal kubrick kept telling him to do it bigger and more crazy and george c scott was just joking around and just doing the most craziest thing that he could possibly do and that's what ended up in the movie yeah because george c scott didn't even care for this performance he actually hated this performance It wasn't until years later that he actually accepted it for what it was. He didn't like what Stanley Kubrick did. He didn't like that Stanley took the -the over-the-top stuff and used all of that in the film instead of how he would normally have delivered it. I don't think George C. Scott was over-the-top in this, though. Oh, yeah, he was. It, it It fits our idea of what the character should be. Yeah, right. it really does. But if you he plays it different, it's not funny anymore. What like when Ken was talking and we were talking about only ten to twenty million dead, depending on how it breaks. If he doesn't do that in a crazy maniacal way, it comes off really, really differently. Yeah, because he has that sinister look to him when he says right. it. If he says it in a concern type of way, it's not funny. It comes off as being worrisome. But when he does it the way that he does it, we know that this guy is crazy because he is all for this mistake that this general has locked himself out, sent out the bomb codes, and the end of the world is going to happen. He's really all for let's get those Ruskies and let's preemptive strike on Russia. He thinks this is a great opportunity. And the way he presents it is just this like diabolical. I'm waiting for him to like wiggle his fingers and go, <laughs> it's awesome but not every take that he did on those lines was something like that it was a very serious tone and that's what's great about Krubik is he gets different things out of you and then he sees what works best and he uses it he's probably the best director to probably do that one of the famous things about Stanley Kubrick when he's doing these films is he'll be like okay do the line okay do the line again all right do the line a little stronger Okay, now let's start filming. And then you do another 30 takes. He's going to get what he wants. Oh, yeah. He has something in mind that he wants. 
he's not going to tell you what he wants, though. He's going to let you figure it out with as many performances as you can give him. I think part of the thinking was, well, I have it in my mind how I want this to be, but the more I keep having you do it, maybe I'm going to like whatever you just did better than what I had in mind. I think that comes to, especially in his later films, like we had talked about previously in The Shining with Shelley Duvall. Oh yeah, they treated her horribly on the set. But he drove her and he got the performance that he wanted. Even Jack Nicholson there in The Shining, he wanted to see what Jack would kind of come up with. And some of the things that he came up with ended up staying in the movie. So I think you get the similar thing here. The only person who really didn't get, I guess, what would be considered the quote-unquote Stanley Kubrick treatment was Peter Sellers. Because I guess they only needed like seven or eight takes, which was more than he wanted to do to begin with. But he ended up giving Stanley what he wanted. And I think that comes from knowing him being the director of Lolita. And you were right that Columbia Pictures wanted Sellers in it because they figured that Sellers was the reason why Lolita was as successful as it was. I would agree with that. Sellers is getting hot at this time. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is Sellers coming into his own. And another thing is Peter Sellers is also probably a genius just like Stanley Krupik is. Yeah. And it's hard for a genius to make a genius do what, what he wants. And maybe there was that respect factor from Stanley Krupik to say, you know what? Peter Sellers is going to give me more than enough. The other actors, not saying that they're not talented or not, they're not gifted, but he doesn't probably know them as well. If you notice, there's not many repeat actors for Stanley Krubick. That's not really true. You have a few that come up. They're more bit actors, mm-hmm. but like Philip Stone, he's in Clockwork Orange. He's in right, Barry right. Lyndon. He's in The Shining. I'm talking about main actors. I'm talking about main actors, right? Yeah. What's his What's his role in The Shining? Philip Stone, he plays Grady. Oh, that's right. Okay. Okay. And then the guy who plays, I think his last name is Menkel, who plays the bartender in The Shining, also played one of the soldiers who was executed in Paths of Glory. So there were people who did come back, but generally they were smaller actors. Peter Sellers is one that came back for multiple movies, and so did Kirk Douglas. But after that, you really don't find anybody who is a major character. And I know we're not talking about Clockwork Orange, but that was one of the things that Malcolm McDowell, when I seen him give a question and answer about Clockwork Orange, that was one of the things that always shocked him, was because he kind of had a father-son relationship with Stanley Kubrick on filming that. And after it was over, he kind of felt that Stanley kind of disowned him in a way because Stanley just moved on. That's kind of how he was. And that hurt Malcolm McDowell's feelings for a long time. He wasn't in any other Kubrick movies, was he? Oh, no. 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 You hear actors say that there's kind of a father-son type of relationships going there. I think why actors might not go back is how many actors really want to do 50 to 100 takes on a film or even 20 to 30 takes. Those things can really strain a relationship. I think he's an actor's director to a certain extent. I think he allows the actors to contribute to the film itself in a way that they don't even know. It's like the Karate Kid when he's like painting the fence up and down. He doesn't realize that by doing what he's doing, it's going to make the film better, even though there's that repetition over and over and over again. 
Right. And it's like with George C. Scott, George C. Scott felt betrayed in a way because of the takes that ended up being used. And they were close on the set, too. A lot of the decisions that were made about the direction that Buck Turgenson's character went stemmed from arguments that Scott and Kubrick had and how they would resolve it was they played chess because I guess George C. Scott was a master chess player as well. And of course, Stanley was a master chess player. But Kubrick beat him most of the time. Oh, yeah. 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 Because he was a chess hustler as a kid in New York. They had a relationship. But what I found interesting is when you talk to most of the actors or when you see them talk about working with Stanley, they all, after the fact, have an appreciation for what he got out of them, even though they might not have liked it at the time. There is one other character that we've talked about, George C. Scott's Buck Turgeson, and we've talked about the great Peter Sellers. Sterling Hayden, he's another major actor that comes back for multiple Kubrick movies. He was in The Killing by Stanley. So he came back for Strange Love. His character here of Ripper, it's almost pitch perfect for how it needs to be. Because you believe that he believes that there is some logic to what he's doing, even though he's completely off of it. He's completely gone at this point. He's completely lost his mind. But the way Sterling Hayden plays it, you believe that he believes everything that he's saying, even though it's completely crazy. Yeah. Do you want to know why I drink distilled water? Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's amazing, uh, his portrayal here. This is one of those characters, too. We had talked about, with Almost Famous, about basing people on real life. Sterling Hayden's character had a lot of similarities to real-life people. Now, the whole fluoridation idea was a conspiracy theory that was cooked up in the 50s and 60s by the John Birch Society. What it means is essentially that through fluoridation, they were making Americans more pacifistic, or becoming pacifists, and that it was also hurting our virility and fertility. So that's an interesting thing with how General Ripper, he figured this all out during the physical act of love. What's the term he uses for his fluids? Oh, that he has his personal POE, personal something fluids. I can't, the essence, purity of essence. Purity of essence, yeah. What's interesting about him also is the fact that he was um, actually a World War II veteran. He had won number of medals like the Silver Star Medal. So he is actually a war hero. And I think he brings some realism to this character by being in a previous war. Yeah, definitely. Even George C. Scott's character, Buck Turgenson, there was a lot of similarities between him and a radical who was part of the Air Force. His name was General Curtis LeMay. He had extreme anti-communist views, which you can tell that Buck Turgeson does in the movie. And then Jack Ripper, he was pretty much based off of a guy named General Thomas Power, who learned at the foot of Curtis LeMay. And to show how right-wing Curtis LeMay was and then how his protege was, Curtis LeMay, he was the vice presidential candidate with George Wallace from Alabama. You can definitely see where they had pigeonholed these two characters because George C. Scott's character is sympathetic to General Ripper. When President Merkin Muffley says, well, he's obviously psychotic, and Buck Turgeson's response was, well, let's don't go quite that far. You're like, what? 
So you know that these two guys are on the same path, but it's interesting how they took pieces of different people and made these very complex characters. Turgeson was hoping that Ripper would do something like this. Maybe he knew that Ripper was off his rocker already and that this would give him an opportunity to go after the Russians. Right. George C. Scott also played George Patton right. in, in the movie Patton. And Patton actually said at the end of World War II that we were possibly fighting the wrong enemy, which got him into a lot of trouble, <laughs> which Patton never shied away from being in trouble. And Patton was but, killed in a Jeep accident uh, the year after World War II. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Old theory on that one. Depends on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go, Alice. Um, I know, I know. Not, but not this podcast. That's a completely different podcast. Well, it's interesting. You also have the Ripper character saying things like, back in the past, you should take the war out of the general's hands. But he was like, we should take this out of the politician's hands, is what he's saying now. But I feel like that's the same thing that uh, Turgenson is saying, too. He doesn't feel that the president is qualified. And that was a huge... This is right out of the time. Because that is what the people who were in the inner circle of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that's how they felt about Kennedy. So there's a lot of real life stuff going on with some of those statements, because a lot of these guys like LeMay were extremely upset with how the Bay of Pigs invasion went, that they weren't able to oust Castro. And it was Kennedy's decision to pull the support. But then also, too, it can go on to Lyndon Johnson. The whole idea of let's take the war out of the politicians' hands. That's a Vietnam sentiment, 100%. If you talk to any Vietnam veteran who served in Vietnam, that was their sentiment. A lot of these things are really based in reality, which, like we had said earlier about if this was a serious movie, I don't know if by government standards they would have let this movie out. Because it really is pulling the, not pulling the curtain back completely, but you have to remember this is a time before the news media prior to Watergate didn't really talk about what went on behind the scenes. And this was a lot of inside sentiment. Yeah, I mean, prior to the Pentagon Papers, really, the media just kind of fell in line with the government. Right. There wasn't any reporting of the affairs that John Kennedy was having. And now it would have been front page news on every website across the globe. But back then it wasn't talked about. It wasn't talked about that Franklin Roosevelt had an affair. And Roosevelt's wife. Well, there's a lot of discussion dun, dun, about that dun. as well. Is that another rabbit hole? No pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. Thanks, Sir Stanley, for the innuendo. I do love so, my conspiracy theories. You know, some of these things, the John Birch Society, they proffered in conspiracy theories. That was their currency, the whole fluoridation idea. And you'll hear that every now and then still pop up from time to time from people like Alex Jones. Just look at people from a good old jolly England and their our age group versus people from the U.S. You look at their teeth. It's uh, pretty obvious because the English had no fluoride in their water whatsoever. Exactly. And, yes. and that's and that's all it was. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and this was a conspiracy theory that they had cooked up. But the John Birch Society, I know it's funny to joke about them for quite a long time. They were pretty scary people. They were as scary as the militias are now. Like we were saying, too, that had to be handled in a funny sort of way, in a very black, dark sense of humor way, because straight up. Wow, you're blowing people's minds and they're not going to watch it. It's a completely depressing movie at that point. 
Yeah, it definitely had to be kind of a black comedy, tongue-in-cheek kind of style. This isn't the movie you go watch at the theater and you have those laugh track moments. It's one of those things you kind of laugh a little bit internally while you're watching it. If anybody would be able to make a serious movie, it would be Stanley Kubrick on this topic, and it'd be successful. The guy is a genius, and the guy knows how to work things, but he did the right thing by making this a satire, making this a comedy. But at the same time, it is serious. It is a serious film. I already said this. The first time you're going into this movie, you're not going to get most of the jokes until you watch it again and again and again. So that first time, most people are probably going to take this as a very serious type of film with certain exceptions. Of course, my favorite part is when they're in the airplane, they're opening up their survival kit. And <laughs> now that's funny. You have the gun and you have the ammo and the first number of things sound very good. And then all of a sudden you get a condom and then you get the mini little Bible with also the Russian speaking it's, guide. It's the Russian speaking guide. <laughs> Russian speaking guy. Because you have to love Slim Pickens' Texas accent there. Because you got like four days of rations, but then Mm -hmm. you have all these different type of shots that they can get. But only one prophylactic. Only one prophylactic. That's right. But they only give you four days, so I'm not sure what they're doing with the prophylactic. (laughs) And we, we joke here, but you're right, Ken. A lot of this was serious. The government took this movie real serious because, one, at the time, the B-52 was a secret plane. Nobody knew what the inside looked like. Well, there was a an obscure article in some airplane enthusiast magazine, and they showed one shot of the inside of a B-52. It was like one of the only pictures produced inside of a B-52. And he recreated the inside of a B-52 so accurately, the United States government wanted to know how he was able to recreate it that close. Like they got scared that he knew something, that he had a a quote unquote, I guess, a spy on the inside. It goes back to that 2001, the the moon landing and how that all looked. If you go down that conspiracy rabbit hole, Alice, yeah, the government said you could produce this movie, but we need you to do this work for you. I don't believe that. But one of the other things that happened is the beautiful shots that are taken from the plane at the beginning, all of those are shot over Greenland. And it just so happened. And here again, one of those things, was it a coincidence? Most likely, but it's what if it wasn't? One of the shots from the plane that they were using to film captured a military installation that was top secret and they sent some planes up and they were not happy at all it's little things like that because we had talked previously too about controversy with stanley kubrick (laughs) something like that ended up having to answer questions to the government about how did he get this knowledge it's interesting to see how the government didn't really take this necessarily as satire because they changed a lot of their procedures to ensure that something like what general ripper does could never happen they changed policies while they publicly dismissed Kubrick's scenario of an accidental nuclear war, <laughs> they set up a particular line going into the White House. So if there was an emergency, like what Colonel Mandrake comes upon, where he can't get in touch with the president from a military installation, 
they changed the procedure so somebody doesn't have to try to call collect to the president. That's a whole nother section of Peter Sellers, his interaction with Colonel Batguano. I love that whole sequence. And I love how it ends with Batguano saying, well, you're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. I always find that very amusing as well. So while this is satire, the government, they, of course, their official line had to be that, of course, it's satire. This could never happen. But they put checks and balances in place to, yeah, maybe we should look to make sure something like this doesn't happen. And that goes back to when your satire is that on point, you know you've done something amazingly correct. Because it has real world effects. A lot of this stuff, too, wouldn't have been able to be done without the paranoia of the Cold War because it was raging at this time. You're looking at the height of Cold War paranoia with Dr. Strangelove. They look at Stanley Kubrick, and the reason why he's able to probably get all this is I heard that he read like something like 70 books on the arm race. I mean, when he gets himself into a movie, he learns everything he can about the subject. He's like obsessed. And so when he does release something, people are like, how do you know all this? Well, he does his research. He reads and he reads and he reads and he reads some more. And then he puts it out there. He takes that knowledge. And we already said how much of a genius he is. He takes everything he reads and he's able to put it together in a way that's so realistic that it shocks you, shocks the system. And people are starting to question, how do you know all this? And one of the things, I agree with you 100%, he just absorbed all the knowledge he could get. And in talking about more about Stanley, we've talked in the previous two movies about the Kubrick stare. And you get it here, too. And you get it in Strange Love as well. The picture of General Ripper, Kubrick has shot kind of looking up at Ripper. That is the stare of a madman. You're and, talking about the stare where he's like, he knows that they're going to interrogate him? No, it's right after, it's when he's telling Mandrake about everything that before the shooting all starts in his office. Yeah, he's got the cigar in his he, mouth. It's his first conversation with Mandrake. Right. Yeah. So I think that start comes out again when he's afraid that he's going to get yeah. interrogated and they're going to get that coat out of him. He, look, he has that same type of stare. He he does, be right before he commits suicide, which that particular type of stare comes back again in the next movie we're going to be talking about, which is Full Metal Jacket. It's interesting how that stare is played for comedy here in Dr. Strangelove, but it's completely different when it's used in Full Metal Jacket. The stare in Full Metal Jacket obviously is compared to the stare in The Shining with Nicholson. Right. It's like one-on-one. It's, on one. it's complete terror yes. scare because this person, there is no humanity left. And that's what's terrifying. So stay but, tuned for that one, folks. But that picture, while it's not my favorite part of The Shining, the view of when Jack has his hands against the door of the pantry that he's been locked in and Stanley shooting that up, looking at his face. You get that similar thing here with, with Sterling Hayden and Ripper. And I love that photo and seeing that's part of how he got his start as a photographer. So you get those moments. It's almost perfect. He's perfectly framed there and something has dislodged in his mind and he's not hinged anymore, but he believes that he is. It's one of those moments that I only get with a Kubrick movie. So I got a question about this movie. At the end of this movie, what is the Soviet ambassador doing? 
Is he taking pictures? Is he he's taking pictures? Initiating. He's taking. He's still taking. Where's watch? His watch okay. has the camera in it. Yeah. It just seems like right there and then, like within a minute, everything blows up, and we don't know exactly what happened. He doesn't either. know that. But, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to him because he's still doing his job because he's been given access to the big board, and which is another funny line that I love every time delivered by George C. Scott. When George C. Scott is saying these things, the ambassador gets up and walks away. Yeah. Because at first he's like, great idea to Dr. Strangelove about the 10 woman to one ratio. But it's something that I think points to this movie about how the male ego was. We take a look at how everything is ego throughout this whole movie. If it's not sexual dysfunction, it's worried about being the next Hitler and about you want your legacy to be. So I think it's ego throughout the whole thing. And then at the end, it is about getting what you want. What they want is to have the situation where they're elite and the women beckon to their call. You think about General Turgensen's remark about a one-on-one relationship. The end of women, monogamy. And it actually excites them. Oh, that yeah. sounds like a great idea. But everybody in that room probably agrees that that's what they would like. And that's why, again, the title of the movie is changed. That's why they said how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb is because they're not focused anymore about what happens to everybody else. They're now focused on what's going to happen to them. And they see it something as being beautiful in their eyes. You're exactly right on a lot of points that you just made, but there's been a lot of psychology articles and books written about the psychology of war and essentially how it's just male-fueled aggression. Essentially, I can't remember where I saw it before, but it was like the amount of stripes on your arm is how many penises do you have on your arm? Because that's the male sign of fertility was what ends up being the stripes on an army person's arm. But Which could really explain all the sexual innuendos in this oh, movie yeah. clearly the whole idea of war has a lot of that in oh, it i'm thinking of the old george carlin jokes that i can't say exactly <laughs> he was 100 percent right yeah and so there's a lot of that at play you're exactly right ken but yeah it's almost like all of these guys this is their fantasy that there's going to be 10 women for every guy well maybe this doomsday thing isn't so bad and shouldn't have a mine shaft gap think about that that's a sexual innuendo in itself the whole idea of a mine shaft. Well played. Yeah, it's so funny. The movie's so layered, it's almost like an onion. And I know that's a overused cliche, but it really is. You keep peeling it back. and the, But at the root, there is real life stuff there. The whole idea, too, of the, the doomsday gap, or when Turgeson keeps mentioning the different gaps that we can't have between us and the Russians, a lot of that comes from the military-industrial complex. It's poking at the whole idea of the military-industrial complex. I think a lot of that, too, I think that's where Terry Southern and Stanley Kubrick really connected in that sort of way, because very similar points of view when it comes to that sort of thing. Do you guys think this movie holds up well for like today's audiences? Do you think it's a political satire that really holds up well that people can relate to still in today's society? I do. I really think it, it does. It perfectly does because, first of all, it doesn't rely on technology. It's timeless in that sense. And there's always a war to fight. I think that's something that I heard mentioned in some documentary about Stanley Kubrick, that there's always the next war and how to battle that. But this is a movie more about battling ourselves and battling the things that we hold dear. Again, you look at the president and you look at General Turgenson, they're both on different ends, but they both think that they're right. Just like in today's day and age where we have 
a country that's divided, each side believes that they're totally right. And the other side needs to listen to what they have to say. Because Refrain, Ted, refrain. <laughs> I have something that I, I want to add to what Ken's saying here, because like where I said that General Turgeson is based off of like Curtis LeMay, you're exactly right. The president is completely different. While he's not a one-on-one -on -one comparison with somebody like Jack Kennedy, he is almost identical in look to Adelaide Stevenson, who was viewed by a lot of people who would have been in the circle of somebody like Curtis LeMay as being the epitome of the anti-male liberal. Of course, Adelaide Stevenson famously lost both elections to Dwight Eisenhower, but that's how he was viewed by people like Curtis LeMay. Adelaide Stevenson was the prototype of the effeminate liberal. So there's a lot to be compared there, too. Well, Dwight Eisenhower, obviously a World War II general and war hero. Yeah, complete opposite. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it really is. But then at the heart, though, like Ken has mentioned, at the end, the president's even kind of on board. Everyone's with, on board. With the whole idea. So are these guys of this ilk, are they really different at the end of the day? But you're right, Ken. There's a lot of comparisons there. And you're right. There's always a war to be fought. This movie holds up. There's always room for satire to hold up. This isn't a snapshot of a particular time until there's a time where we don't have nuclear weapons that are pointed at each other once those are gone then maybe yeah we could discuss later on down the line that maybe this doesn't hold up but as long as there's nuclear weapons in the world and they're pointed at each other it's always going to hold up that way could you imagine Trump calling Korea and saying, hey, we have an issue here with a nuclear bomb? And uh, what do you mean? I, I I meant to call you. I know I don't, I don't mean to call you only when something bad happens. I, totally. I, it's just that's what I, where my mind goes to right now, thinking about our current president and some of the conversations he might have with Russia or Korea or totally. any other uh, uh, country that he's dealing with. So like I said, again, this is a movie that I do think it holds up well. You said that you mentioned it as an onion i look at it more like a cardboard egg where the the first part is very hard and you have to get through that hard shell to get to what you can actually enjoy the actual egg part of it because it takes uh, at least a couple of watchings to really make this movie relevant in your eyes i don't want to put words in your mouth but now this is our third stanley kubrick movie haven't we found that with each one of the movies takes the farther you go down that's where the real good stuff is Right. And in fact, my grades of each movie has improved with this podcast because I'm invested into knowing more and more about these movies. And Stanley Kubrick rewards me for multiple watches where some movies you watch it the first time and then you watch it again. And you say to yourself, why did I like that the first time? This is something where you watch it and then you watch it again. You say to yourself, why didn't I like it the first time? It's the exact opposite of how I sometimes approach movies. So what do you think, boys? Should we wrap this up and get into our reviews of the movie? Works for me. All sure. right, Ken. Fire away. What do you think? Well, I basically have, I think, said how much I've enjoyed this film. At first, this film was very hard for me to get through. And if I went into the movie theater and I had popcorn and ready to go, I don't know if I would enjoy this movie as much as watching it the second and third time. With Stanley Kubrick's movies, I just love how it is layered. He is a very layered director. It's not basic. You ain't going to get a basic movie with Stanley Kubrick. And I've learned to kind of enjoy that. Coming into this month, 
of Stanley Kubrick, I was kind of going, oh no, I'm going to have to go through these movies. These movies are movies I only kind of watched once because it didn't catch me the first time. But then watching it again for this podcast made me realize how wonderful these movies can be. Peter Sellers is just amazing in this movie. I am drawn with Peter Sellers and George C. Scott. I love George C. Scott. And I'm not a big George C. Scott fan, to be honest with you guys. Been always a Peter Sellers fan. I, I love the Pink Panther movies. I like the movie being there. I really appreciate Peter Sellers. But I did not appreciate George C. Scott as much as I do with him in this movie. And I think these two performances, especially for me, allow me to watch it a second and third time. So if I didn't have the podcast, let's just say, and I didn't have to watch it again, I would come back to watch this again for Peter Sellers and George C. Scott. And for the rest of the actors on this, they did a really great job. But these two, for whatever reason, has drawn me in. My grade is bordering on a B minus to a B. And I think it's more a B because of multiple watches. If I would have said, yeah, after my first watch, what would this be? I would have probably said a C plus. But as the multiple watches have happened, I'm getting inching closer to that B. So I'm right there on that border of B minus B, this particular movie. And that's kind of similar to what I've graded the other movies of uh, Stanley Kubrick. My grade improves as I watch the film. Very cool. I'm kind of on board with you, Ken. Initially, this is probably maybe, I don't know, the 10th time I've seen this movie over the past... 15, 20 years. I mean, I, I remember seeing it originally and I was kind of disturbed about it because I'm like, why is it not in color? That was my initial reaction. I'm like, why is this movie not in color? It's 64. It should be color. And that kind of jarred my watching the movie. So probably the first couple times I saw it, I'm just going to write that off. But, you know, after that, after I really appreciated the movie more, and I'll be honest, this is probably, if not my favorite Kubrick film, definitely in the top two. It is just a great movie. As you probably know, I throw this word around a lot, cinematography. I do love good and great cinematography in a movie. And in this case, the depiction of the war room and the way they built it and put it together is top tier. The B-52, as Ted mentioned, they had one picture and then they added a bunch of little gauges and lights and tabs and everyone told them, man, you are right on with this. This thing looks like an actual B-52. Uh, it's a great movie. I love the cast. There's really not too much I can say that's uh, bad about this movie. There's a few slow scenes in it here and there, but overall, Every time I watch it, I dig something out that I didn't see the last time. I give this movie a B plus. Ted, how about you? Well, it's no secret that Stanley Kubrick's movies are my favorite to watch. And this no. is right. That's not going to be any big surprise. Dr. Strangelove is a movie that I come back to probably a couple, two or three times a year. And I never cease to be enthralled by the movie. Ted, I, sorry to, to interrupt you, but... Maybe you can answer this question. Why wasn't it made in color? The only thing I was able to find on something like that was because it almost has that documentary style feature. I mean, I love it in and, black and white now. I mean, I really appreciate it. And the whole opening sequence with the two planes, that's stock footage. In black and white. From the Air Force. 
So that's actual stock footage. I don't know how easy it would have been to get some of the shots that were captured by the planes that they were shooting over Greenland. I don't know how easy that would have been to have captured in color at that time, being that they were moving. That's something for somebody much more intelligent than me to know. But I did read because it almost comes off as a documentary style feel. And so all of those would have probably have been in black and white at the time. The black and white aspect adds a lot to me. I know there's people out there that don't care for black and white movies. I definitely don't share that sentiment. It kind of comes off of like being a dream a little bit. It does. If it's in color, and like you said, Ken, as far as a dream, if this movie's in color, it almost seems more real. You know what I mean? It comes off as like, wow, all of a sudden things that are funny may not be so funny anymore. And that's a whole psychological thing that here again, somebody a lot smarter than me could possibly talk about. It almost, like you said, kind of has that dreamlike feature. And I think in color, some of this stuff is going to be more disturbing. I wonder if the multiple roles of Peter Sellers also kind of plays into this part, because I think when you have something in color, it's more visual. It maybe takes away from the characters. They see more of Peter Sellers behind the scenes and doing it black and white. I think it's easier for him to kind of disappear. Well, you see more flaws in color, too. That's the thing as well. Yeah, it's probably easier, like you said, too, Ken, for him to play multiple roles. Although he is a chameleon. It's easy for him to fall into multiple roles like that. Like I said, I almost get the feeling that if it's in color, it's not. It loses something. It, it, it's, it's, it feels real. Then. Yeah. And whereas it doesn't necessarily feel real here. That makes a big difference. I'm glad you brought that up, Eric. I would say if black and white is the satire, and like you said, the color is the realness. And I think it's harder to have it as a satire in color. And I think it pulls it off very well in black and white. But yes, finish your review, Ted. Let us know what you think of the movie. Okay. Yes, please, so, Ted. No, that's that's okay. My feelings of Stanley Kubrick movies, I love them. And Dr. Strangelove was not the first Stanley Kubrick movie that I saw. But it's one that when I discovered it, I thoroughly enjoyed. It made me laugh. It makes me laugh every time I watch it. That's hard for me because sometimes comedy, it loses its punch with me after a while. This one, for whatever reason, doesn't. And I think it's because of the satirical nature of it. And I do have a darker sense of humor. I find this amusing all the time. And when I watch it, I watch it where I try to focus on a different thing every time, whether it be a General Ripper one time. And that's where I discovered just how much I enjoyed Sterling Hayden's performance. It's one of those strange movies that I can come to and almost have fresh eyes every time I watch it. It's very different for me. Every time I watch it, I love it. It's almost as perfect of a comedy satire as there is out there. I don't know how it could have been more dead on. So this movie is definitely an, an A for me. It almost is the in the A-plus range for me, but it doesn't quite hit the A-plus. And I couldn't tell you exactly why it wouldn't hit an A-plus, other than there are movies that I know are an A-plus that we'll be reviewing. But I learned to love the bomb. What can I say? Okay, well... Thank you, everybody, for joining us uh, for Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Next week, we will be doing the 1987 Stanley Kubrick film Full Metal Jacket. All right, Private Joker. That's right.
So, Ted, you want to give us a little information about uh, some of our websites, where you can find us on the World Wide Web out there? So, if you're Private Joker, does that make Ken Private Pile? Oh, yes, clearly. Hmm. Hmm. You can definitely catch us. Um, we are on Twitter, at in underscore feature. Come and uh, discuss with us there. We have a nice little community that we're growing of people who interact with us. So come and join the conversation. Okay, great. Well, thanks for joining us, folks. Have a great one. We will see you at the movies. See you at the movies. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.